Welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Vasca, and we're kicking off Noir Vember by talking about Ida Lupino, the great actress, director, and producer. She was responsible for some great chills and thrills in front of and behind the camera. And today I'm joined by playwright David Kessler as we discuss his memory play, an imaginary meeting between the artist Gwen John and Ida Lupino as a meeting between two highly creative women recognizing each other's personal and historical presence. I love this play called Gwen and Ida. The object is of no importance. And I'm so glad you could be with me, David, to talk about your work and Ida and her connection to noir and her connection to film and television as a whole. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Ariel. It's a real thrill. I want to start out by asking, why exactly do you feel a connection to Ida Lupino? I feel a connection to anyone who feels compelled to create. Hmm. And one of the wonderful things about Ida Lupino is most people think of her as an actor. She thought of herself as an actor, but she actually first and foremost thought of herself as a creator, as a writer, as a songwriter, as a producer, and as a director. She came from an acting family uh, that went back for generations. But she really wanted to write more than anything else. And that was an avenue not open to uh, a woman, a young woman in the 1930s. She was less than 17 when she came to Hollywood. And at the time when she came to Hollywood, too, I find it really interesting that she was coming from a very theatrical background in England as well. And so she sort of has this double transition that she has to make when she comes to Hollywood. How did you feel about her ability to sell herself when she gets to Hollywood? She had made a couple of movies in England. So she was familiar with cinema before she came to Hollywood. And she came with her mother. And Ida had been quite experienced on the stage before she got there. And Hollywood dolled her up. They dyed her brunette hair platinum blonde. They plucked her eyebrows. And if you see any of her early movies, they tried to present her as a kind of a, a sexualized ingenue. One of the beauties about Ida's acting is you can, you can see some of the interior struggles that go on versus the external things that she's trying to present. And even as a very young woman, you could see that struggle. And she's struggling in the movies, but she's also struggling against the studio system. And she struggled against the studio system for her entire life. She was always getting suspended. She was refusing things. She was pushing the boundaries uh, because she was a very independent woman, even as a very young woman. So I think when she first came to Hollywood, she tried to play along, but she was brought in to originally play Alice in Wonderland, and she knew the part was not right for her, and she refused it. As a kid, the first thing she did when she got to Hollywood was an act of defiance. And as a woman, I would imagine that wouldn't have gone over very well for a woman to draw a line in the sand in quite that way. Oh, not at all. She was brought into Warner Brothers as a kind of a backup because Betty Davis was having very similar problems to Ida Lupino a, a few years ahead of her. And Jack Warner figured he could plug Ida into roles that Betty refused to play. And she actually called herself a poor woman's 
Betty Davis. And then Ida would start refusing the roles. So they both would end up getting suspended. <laughs> Ida was clever, though. She would go off to New York while she was under suspension and record radio plays so she could keep working and keep her name in the arts field. And she does so much fabulous work. When you were writing... I wonder, because she's doing all of this work simultaneously, how did you find her voice amid all of these different creations that she was working on? Well, I've always believed that human beings are kind of like cut diamonds, and they have many different facets. And most human beings, as they get older, they become set diamonds. So you only see a few of the facets. Ida was one of those diamonds where you saw many of the facets, and she allowed many of the facets to show. She was a Renaissance woman. Uh, I'm a dilettante, and I've always tried to expose many of my different facets. So I truly identified with someone who, who's just full of creativity and has to show a lot of facets. Of course, she's much more creative than I am, much more than I am. And in doing research for the play, I watched a bunch of her movies, both ones that she had directed and produced and ones that she starred in or appeared in. And I read some biographies of her and I took copious notes and I did the same thing for Gwen John, the artist. And then I had my big pile of notes and I started writing and I did not look at the notes at all while I was writing. Really? Yeah, because I just wanted to push through with the writing And it was a fantasy. I was making things up. Uh, There were certain true things in the story, but a lot of it was not true. Later on in the editing process, I might look at the notes to make sure I got a quote right or a year right. But I did not want to have the facts interfere with the story I was trying to tell. And that sounds awful. I realize that. (laughs) I'm an awful guy. What can I say? But the facts are something that you were processing as you were constructing the notes in order to come up with the fantasy. I think that's fair to say. And when we went through the editing process, our director, Lynn Sharp Spears, who was phenomenal and really guided me through editing the play, she said that I learned lots of stuff and I wanted to tell that stuff to everybody. (laughs) And I had to kind of pare that down because one of the things I did not want in the play, I did not want it to be, uh, and then I did, and then I did kind of play. Mm -hmm. That actually is why Ida was brought into the play because the play was originally a one woman play about the artist Gwen John. And why the decision to frame it around the female director who's framing her story. What about that made it so different in your view? Well, I always knew it would be a feminist story. That's just the way it had to be. And Gwen John was a woman artist struggling in a very male-dominated world. And Most people have never heard of her. And if they have, they know her as Rodin's last mistress. And if they know of Rodin's mistress, they know of Camille Claudel and don't even think Mm -hmm. of Gwen John. And to be a great artist like Gwen John and to be identified as someone's mistress is appalling to me. It, It infuriates me. So I knew there would be a strong female voice in this. But I chose a framing device 
I wanted another strong female voice and Ida Lupino immediately popped into mind. And then as the more I looked, I saw there were some interesting similarities, but also some interesting differences between the two of them so that there would be some, some conflict involved. And it would lead to what I hope was a not just a reconciliation, but almost a melding of characters by the end of the play, uh, where they really appreciate one another and identify with one another where they had not before. And it's very interesting because going through the lens of the play and through the conversations between the two of them, where they are both sort of having these historically based conversations about each other's biographies and experiences, it plays out very much like a memory play, but it's also simultaneously the, the beauty of your language is incredible where you have lines where Ida Lupino is talking about how she says, I fought to understand the most poorly written of characters and I fought to change the script where I could and I couldn't change the lines. I could at least control my body, my expressions to reveal the essence and they're both sort of talking about how they reveal the essence of life in some way through their art. And I love the way that comes through in the language in your play. I chose to write in a very heightened, almost poetic type of language. We had wonderful actors in it, uh, Rebecca Ellis as, as Ida Lupino and, and Aubrey O'Connor as Gwen John and Maddie Griffiths as Jack Warner. And some of the language was very difficult for them because I wrote in a very heightened poetic way. I write sonnets for fun. So I kind of think in those terms and I wanted it, I didn't want it to be natural, but I wanted it to be emotionally accurate. Mm -hmm. And I felt that the poetry was the way to do that. And since they both felt so strongly about what they did, it gets expressed in, in poetry, what there's, oh, remember the TV show Malcolm in the Middle? Yeah, yeah. There was once an episode where the TV is stuck on PBS and uh, all the kids leave except for the youngest one, Dewey, and he's stuck all day watching opera. And by the end of the day, he's in tears and he says, it's so wonderful because they feel so strongly about something they can't say it, they have to sing it. Mm-hmm. And the heightened language is my way of, of doing that. They feel so strongly they, they have to do it in poetic language. And the initial relationship with Gwen and Ida is adversarial. Ida is pitching a movie to Jack Warner, a biopic. And this is Ida's way of trying to break into the A movies. And she initially presents this very Hollywoodized version of Gwen John and a very look through the male lens. And and Gwen starts hearing what's being said about her and manifests herself. And with Ida, she's it's a very antagonistic relationship. And at one point, I believe it's been a while since I read the play. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should have looked it over. Gwen says, you know, you can't tell my story. And Oh, oh, no, Gwen doesn't want to tell her story anymore to Ida. And Ida says, well, if you don't tell me your story, I will. Mm-hmm. And Gwen looks at her and says, you're a monster. And it's the way that Aubrey said, you're a monster, 
to Rebecca in the play, when I think of it, it wasn't my writing, it was their performance that makes the hair stand up on my arms. I never knew that line would be so chilling until I saw it in performance. And that was, let me just take another digression here, is one of the beauties of, this was the first play I wrote for other actors. All my other plays, I performed myself. The two of them with a musicians live on stage with me. But I was the one doing all the jabbering. And as I watched the rehearsal process and then saw the play in final version, what I loved the most was watching the play and not recognizing the words as my own. Mm. They became the words of the actors. They became the words of the characters. I, I lost all ownership of it. And I love that. I loved losing ownership of it and having it become something different, something that didn't belong to me at all. And that was a beautiful thing. And I'm sorry I'm babbling here. but Oh, no, no. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling when you see your words projected on stage. And there, there's really no explanation in the world that quite does the experience justice as far as I'm concerned. As a playwright myself, I, I completely agree with you 1000%. It's, it's nothing that anyone can ever really share unless they've also labored and toiled over crafting every word and then suddenly watched it fall from other people's mouths as naturally as if it was born from a thought. There's just nothing like it. What I love, though, about your script is that it has this highly poetic language, but then at the same time, it's undercut by the foul-mouthed Jack Warner in the background. (laughs) And it's such a lovely interplay where I think that you manage to get at a lot of the reality of the situation of exactly what Ida Lupino was experiencing in terms of the studio system and also what female artists had to experience on the whole through that character of Jack Warner, even as they are expressing so artfully what their internal lives are like. Yeah, Jack kind of brings things to earth and is, is a little comic relief and is also a little grit in the story. And originally, Jack was written as being offstage and just a voice, but Maddie brought him to life on stage. And there, Lynn and the lighting director, um, Helen Garcia Alden, did wonderful things with Jack. There are scenes where essentially Ida kind of shuts Jack down. And what would happen is the lights would just go off on Jack's desk and he would be cast into darkness or he would just become completely still. And at one point, Ida kind of gives the nod to Gwen and Gwen shuts Jack down. And those were things that I didn't have in the script. They were, they were put in during the process. And it was great because Jack originally is, is in the position of power. And by the end, the women are much more powerful than Jack and much more in control than Jack. And uh, Jack throughout the play keeps screaming for food. He's always hungry. He wants food. And finally, Gwen prepares a sandwich for him and just slaps it down on the desk. And he loves the sandwich. It's delicious. And it was a wonderful bit of comedy that 
also brought Gwen into the play as as less than an ideal and more of a, a real person who could kind of interact and get involved with this and have fun with this. And again, that's part of the development of the play. There are also three short scenes in the play in which Ida assumes characters in Gwen's memories. And the characters, their arc is completely the opposite of the arc of Ida and Gwen's. Ida and Gwen grow closer as the play develops. And the characters that Ida plays uh, grow more antagonistic towards Gwen as the play develops. So it, it was a mean thing to me to do as a playwright for the actor having to play Ida because she had to really bifurcate her role. Oh, Rebecca was amazing in it. It was just wonderful to see the the final scene with a memory character is uh, a woman, Vera, whose last name I can never pronounce correctly, that Gwen John kind of became obsessed with late in life. And she rejects Gwen. And as Ida is playing the character, Ida doesn't want to play the character anymore. It breaks her heart to have to be cruel to Gwen in this. And and Gwen says, no, you got to play this. You have to do this. And it's it's a heartbreaking scene because Ida is now also confused with her own characters as she's reacting with Gwen. It's really quite fascinating to watch that happening even on the page. Although I would imagine in person, it's so much more stunning to watch the transformation happen. Yeah, seeing it on stage, the way it was done and with, with the, the actors and with the lighting and the movement was just, it was really pretty stunning to see and, uh, surprised me. <laughs> I knew what I was, I knew what I was aiming for, but what the actors and, and directors and, and lighting and sound people did is brought it way beyond whatever I could imagine. That's incredible. And the final line in your play, I really, really love the dear cats, the cats who received love with indifference, because it is your love that is important, not whether it is appreciated. Yeah, Gwen is always seeking love. Gwen tends, Gwen is, is, and I think the real Gwen John, this is somewhat true, was, was an obsessive personality who would latch on to different people in her life and be obsessed with. And in most cases, they did not truly love her back. But what's important is the capacity to love, not necessarily to be loved, but to love. Late in life, Gwen became very religious, and she always had her cats, and she did hundreds and hundreds of drawings and sketches and paintings of these cats. And the cats were indifferent to her, but that didn't matter. She loved them. And that was what was important. And with Ida, Gwen, Gwen can see into Ida's future and tells Ida that, you know, she went on to only make five movies that she directed, but she directed many television shows. And Gwen says, Bewitched and uh, Gilligan's Island. And um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and, and a bunch of other things, The Twilight Zone. And Ida says, that doesn't sound like art to me. And Gwen says, no, it is. Art is what you make. And the same way that to be able to love is what's important, to be able to create is what's important. And Ida Lupino created 
and Gwen John created, and they spent their lives creating and making art. And what that specific art is, is not as important as making it. But, but. (laughs) (laughs) I would argue that uh, Ida Lupino, who this podcast is more about than Gwen John. Sorry. (laughs) um, No, 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 no. No, I mean, it's wonderful. I love your play and everything that you have to say. Um, But I feel like Ida Lupino really does have a lot to say and that it's more than just the creation in her in her particular instance when she's remembered today as an actress as a writer as a director as a producer you know even this morning I was talking to my mother about Ida Lupino, just because I was going to be recording this podcast. And she said, Oh, I remember every single time I watched her films, I knew she was brilliant. And I said, Well, how did you know that? And she said, You could just see it on her face, every nuance and every detail of what the character was thinking was there on her face. And you could just tell how incredibly intelligent she was. Even if she herself hated the movie she was in, you could see that on her face. You could tell exactly what she was thinking in any given moment. And to my mother, that was everything. Because I think for her, when she was reflecting on this, it was more about the fact that very few actresses actually were allowed to portray themselves as having brains of any kind. And Ida Lupino was, as you definitely discuss in your play, she's the queen of the bees, but she's also the queen of the brains. Absolutely. Even in in fluffy things when she was younger, you could see her thinking. You could see her, and she was a hard worker. I mean, she put everything into every role she played. And I think she was the brainiest. Uh, you know, when you think of other actors uh, from her era, and I think it's only fair to compare actors of the same era. Um, I think about people like Myrna Loy and Irene Dunn and Barbara Stanwyck, all also portrayed a great deal of intelligence in their acting. But Lupino had, had an intensity, I think, that you did not see as much in them, in, in the no. others I just mentioned. There was an incredible intensity There also is a strong moral sense in her, way ahead of her time, that you especially see in the movies that she directed, they were also movies that she produced. Exactly. And they dealt with very difficult topics. I mean, in 1950, to make a movie about rape from the woman's point of view, and it is a, I, I watched it again last night, Outrage is a heartbreaking movie it is and it is so modern i mean i i get so annoyed when i hear men talking and they say oh well i don't know any woman who's ever been raped and uh, I say, yes you do <laughs> i say yes you do you just don't know any woman who's told you that yeah and i think that's one of the things that that movie really showed and pointed out and even in a movie like like the bigamist where she is sensitive towards the bigamist, mm-hmm. which is amazing and not wanted about unwed 
mothers and never fear about people working to overcome a disability, which in this case is, is polio. She was dealing with topics that were astonishing to deal with. And that that's from the get-go what she chose to do. I mean, I I had an original plan after I retired that I would write two plays. And the first one was going to be a light, fun one so that I could really knock it out with my second one. <laughs> she, from the get-go, made a tough one for her first one. I mean, yeah. so impressive. Absolutely phenomenal. Well, and Not Wanted was really her first one. I mean, yes. given that she took over for Elmer Clifton after he had a heart attack. Before filming started. Yeah, I mean, the film, the filming hadn't even started. And what I love, to be very honest, Not Wanted is maybe even my favorite Ida Lupino film. Not because of necessarily the writing or anything in particular about the camera work. In fact, I think the camera work from Outrage is superior, particularly yes. in the very noirish chase scene. But what I love about Not Wanted are the performances that she gets from each of the individual performers are so subtle. From the Sally Kelton character, who has these beautiful micro expressions that are very Ida Lupino-ish in terms of exactly what she's able to convey. And I very much get the sense when I watch Not Wanted that Ida Lupino's contribution there was not necessarily so much in terms of setting up for the cinematography itself or any of that, but the articulation of how the actors were going to play certain parts of it. And I think she had the best cast in that particular film that she ever got to work with and that she had the strongest influence over them, especially given that the film that more people know her for, The Hitchhiker, she had men who deliberately did not want to take direction from a woman who were deliberately fighting her tooth and nail. Am I correct about that? Yes. When you think about Not Wanted, Ida Lupino was in her mid-30s when she directed Not Wanted. And she was dealing with many very young actors. And she showed great sensitivity in dealing with young actors. She worked with young actors in a lot of her movies. And she was young herself. And I think one of the things that works so well in her movies, and Not Wanted, especially when you think about it, is she's not judgmental. Mm -hmm. And one of the things when you act in things, and I'm, I'm beginning to learn that because I'm, I'm beginning to perform in things that I have not written myself, you always have to believe in your character and in yourself. And when you watch her movies, everyone in those movies believes in her or himself, that they're doing what needs to be done and not wanted. She does not condemn this woman for having premarital sex. In The Bigamist, she does not condemn any of the characters for being in love and acting on their love in a physical sense. Mm -hmm. Again, in the early 1950s, pretty amazing. So and I agree with you definitely that cinematography is, is not really very interesting and not wanted at all. In, in Outrage, there's a lots of scenes that are quite remarkable. The dance scene is really mm. astonishing in that. And when you watch her television scripts that she directed, one of the things that's most interesting about it is 
they don't show her hand. They are good, professional, workmanlike jobs. And what's remarkable is that a woman in the 1950s was directing Have Gun Will Travel and <laughs> The Untouchables and what you would consider macho kind of things. Yeah. And mostly because she was friends with like Richard Boone and the actors, she would get these these roles directing. And she didn't get the roles directing because she was a woman or because she was Ida Lupino. She got the roles directing because she knew how to get the job done mm -hmm. and could do it. Uh, so the remarkable thing about her television directing is how unremarkable it is, how it mm -hmm. fits into the, the times. I was talking to my wife yesterday about it. And she said, oh, well, in the 1950s, weren't, you know, all the TV shows were all kind of namby-pamby and stuff. I said, no, that's the 1960s you're thinking about. The 1950s, it was tough. Remember Marty, which ended up winning the Academy Award with yeah. Ernest Borgnine, was a TV movie. 12 mm -hmm. Angry Men was. The Twilight Zone came about because Rod Serling was getting tired of his left-wing scripts getting thrown out. So he figured, I can get my left-wing ideas in by making it science fiction. It truly was a golden age of television. And, you know, you watch some of the scripts of Have Gun Word Travel. That was some pretty tough stuff. And there was a lot of violence in it that she was directing just like anyone else would direct, male or female. So her importance in some ways as a female director is that she's a director. And that she is doing literally everything a man would be doing at the time. That's right. Without any special stuff attached to it, they could have given her soap operas or things like that. I don't think she would have wanted that. And she no. would do comedy. She would do thrillers. She would do all sorts of things. Yeah. But she didn't do the so-called women's things. Leave those to Douglas Sirk. But what's interesting is that her first two films right out of the park deal with women's issues very explicitly, but in a way that not many women's issues had been dealt with before and have ever been dealt with since. For example, Absolutely. in 1949, Not Wanted, she deals with the issue of birth control and abortion and women's reproductive rights in a way that is extremely subtle and nuanced and you've never seen another film deal with that in quite the same way so many of her films have this through line of a character with a disability which i personally really deeply resonate to and i feel like that's something that was missing from hollywood at the time and still is missing from hollywood largely is these sensitive portrayals of characters with disabilities that don't feel exploitative and gratuitous or like inspiration porn of some kind. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. She was about 40 years ahead of her time and, mm -hmm. and the issues she was dealing with even today, many of them are not dealt with. And it is astonishing that as a young person, albeit an experienced young person, she would take these on. I think a lot of it had to do with her then-husband, Collier. And what's interesting is uh, Collier Young, they divorced, I think it was in 1951, when she was pregnant with her soon-to-be third husband's child, Howard Duff. But she and Collier remained friends. And he continued as her producing partner and as her script writing partner. 
And the two of them together made these movies that were astonishing for their time or for any time. I think it is the, in the movies that she produced and directed, of course, that's where you really see the, though she would never call herself a feminist, that is where you see the, the true feminist through line in her art. And again, also with her dealing with people with uh, disabilities, she had an early polio scare and it did affect her for the rest of her life. And she did have lots of illnesses and she was a tough cookie and would prevail, but she also would get criticized by the studios for taking time off if she injured herself. And I Mm -hmm. think, was it in High Sierra that she got seriously injured falling off a rock? You know, and she just would push through. There's another uh, drive. They drive by night where you see the courtroom scene. She's got this humongous lump on her head because she had injured herself the day before, but she pushed through. So she herself knew how to work through pain, knew how to work through injury. And she portrayed disability and pain and injury in a realistic light, in a sympathetic light, but not in a saccharine way and not in a patronizing way. And I think possibly the most important thing I get from her as a director is she is not patronizing at all mm-hmm. or patronizing, depending on how I want to pronounce it all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I love that about her work. And what makes me sad, though, is that a lot of people really only remember her directing work for The Hitchhiker. And yeah. I just wonder, how do you react to that film when you watch it now? The Hitchhiker is a tidy little thriller. A great role by, who's it, William Talman, is that? Mm-hmm. Um, who most people, if they remember him at all, remember him as the prosecutor from the old Raymond Burr Perry Mason TV series. And he is a great villain. He's a wonderful villain. The movie itself, it's a short movie, but it keeps repeating itself quite a bit. But I think it is interesting in showing a certain um, male weakness. And I think Ida probably was having a little fun showing that. It's a tense movie at times. It's a good movie. But of the movies she has directed, that and The Trouble with Angels are the ones I think of the least. Same, actually. (laughs) And I know that's kind of strange to say that I would actually consider some of her TV work ahead of The Hitchhiker. I mean, like, I would still consider that Twilight Zone episode, The Masks, to be more interesting in some ways than The Hitchhiker. Yeah. Oh, yes. The Masks is, I mean, forget who wrote it, but it, it is... Well, uh, that was Rod Serling who wrote that Rod Serling about that one? Yeah. Okay. And it's a wonderful story, and it, and it fits perfectly well to everything, you know, you think about what we've been talking about in terms of revealing oneself and yeah. uh, hiding oneself. And yes, it's a fine piece of work. It, it really is. And I, the other day, I actually watched a couple of the um, the Half Gum Will Travels, and they're pretty interesting too. That was an interesting western in and of itself because it was about a uh, a gunslinger, but Richard Boone played this very cultured gunslinger who had a very interesting sense of morality, though he did kill a lot of people. <laughs> and, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, morality does play such an interesting role in the works that she chooses to do. And I think in those television shows, they're no exception. Yeah, the 50s were, as I said before, a very interesting time for television. Um, And it was a place where uh, lots of things that were going on 
at the time and, you know, were explored in the 50s, though we talk about it as being the silent generation and, and a whole generation of people who were appeasers. I don't think that's necessarily true when you really start looking at the art that was created then and the movements that were created then. I mean, the Birmingham bus boycott was in the 1950s, folks. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's it's just so fascinating to me thinking about her work in terms of everything that was going on simultaneously in film and television. You see a lot of her work as an actress certainly does fall within the genre of film noir and certainly... I would call both The Hitchhiker and Outrage to have elements of film noir. But when I think of film noir, she's not the first person who comes to mind. Absolutely not. You know, when I think of film noir, I think of a mindset of the world is totally corrupted. And you can fight that corruption and you could have a minor victory, but you are never going to be able to overcome that corruption, that total corruption. And in that sense, I really don't think of her very much in terms of film noir at all. She's been in some film noirs, but I don't consider the movies she's made noir. Um, Outrage, what we would think of as the film noir elements, especially the chase scene uh, when, when she's being pursued by the rapist. I think of that much more as almost a more a German expressionist it is more German expressionist, actually. Um, but a lot of people try to categorize that as proto-noir as yeah, well. No. And it doesn't quite fit for me because it has too many shades of M when I look at it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't quite work as a descriptor. And when I look at The Hitchhiker, I also don't feel like just because it's a lot of men wearing the right outfit that doesn't make it noir. The Hitchhiker is not noir. The Hitchhiker is a thriller. Yeah, it's it, very it a much thriller. a thriller. It, it's not a film noir at all. And it, good overcomes evil at the end. You know, it's... it's yeah, it's, that's that's yeah, hardly... It's not noir. The cynical nature of noir. The, the main characters are not flawed enough <laughs> <laughs> to make it noir. You know, I mean, in film noir, everyone is damaged mm-hmm. from the get-go, right? I, I just don't think of it noir. And I, you know, when you look at like High Sierra is not a film noir either. You know, that's yeah. one of the movies many people think. Of, I, yeah. Uh, and I just watched that one the other night, too. And I agree completely with you on that one. Hey, you said we were going to disagree. Come on now. OK. <laughs> All right. Well, I thought we were going to disagree more about Not Wanted. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, not at all. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. But for me. I feel like I'm doing a bit of a disservice by putting her in Noir Vember, but at the same time, it's sort of an excuse to talk about Ida Lupino. That's fine. Because she is misclassified in this sense, but at the same time, I want to celebrate what she represents. Well, this will be Ida November. I-Vember. I-Vember. Loop-Vember. (laughs) Loop-Vember. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Yeah, because I really, I don't think of her as noir at all. You know, think of like Mary Astor, if you want to look at the women in noir um, and, and others. But, you know, Ida, nah. And her outstanding talent, I think, really just lies in her knowledge around what she's doing. And to be so on top of everything and to be able to 
somehow, in spite of all of her suspensions as an actress, managed to wangle her way as the director, as the producer, in the middle of all of that <laughs> is remarkable. Yeah. Incredible. You know, not just talent, but drive and independence. You know, when I think of Ida, I think of someone who just, yes, she will play the game to get along, but only up to a point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she has her limits. I mean, she she did one movie, you know, that Howard Hughes produced, and that didn't work out too well. You know, that he was not a kind of person she could work. She could work better with Jack Warner than with Howard Hughes, because Warner at least had some experience with other strong women. And I don't think Hughes did. Mm -hmm. But Warner was a bastard, too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, they all were, let's yeah, be honest. <laughs> absolutely. Did you get a chance to see uh, any of um, Adam and Mr. Even? I Mr. didn't. S? I didn't. I was sad. I couldn't find that, actually. Yeah, YouTube has, has a bunch. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Just go on YouTube. I will check that out. Because they, they are really worth seeing. And I think she directed one of them. But essentially, she and her then husband, Howard Duff, played parodies of themselves. There's one where they're going to the Academy Awards and she's getting an Oscar and he's not. I love and it. He just kind of falls apart. And it's it's a wonderful kind of it's wonderful that they could do this with each other, that they would spoof themselves like that. And it, it is a watch that and then then you can like go watch other Hollywood things like Altman's the player or something after right, that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you so very much for this conversation. This was wonderful. And I highly recommend all of our listeners to go forth and seek out Ida wherever you can. And I want to just quickly ask, uh, you are still doing theatrical performances, even in the midst of the pandemic, are you not? I am. um, New Sass, which is a wonderful feminist theater company in Washington, and they co-produced along with my company, Uncle Funzy Productions, Gwen and Ida, The Object is of No Importance in 2019. Newsass is doing something called Backyard Arts. And what we will do, it's, uh, it's my first play, Wombat Drool, a jolly little story about animals and wombats and many other things. And uh, Marks and Soho, which is Mary Myers portrays uh, Karl Marx in Howard Zinz's play. And she was nominated for a Helen Hayes Award when that first came out. She's phenomenal. And then there's one other play, which is out of my brain right now. And all three of those plays are available for us to perform in your backyard, uh, socially distanced and safe. And we also have one venue available um, if you do not have a big enough backyard that we can arrange for that. And if you go on to NUSAS, N-U-S-A-S-S dot com, uh, you can find all the contact information about that. What I miss during the pandemic is not performing because I've had opportunities to do Zoom stuff and I've said no. What I miss is a live audience. Yeah. Interaction with the audience. I've never thought of myself as an actor. I'm a performer and I love to react and interact with an audience. So it's so much fun to bring Wombat Drool back and I've rewritten it as a special pandemic edition. So uh, (laughs) we do keep up to date with it. 
one of the venues that we do have, uh, we have outdoor heaters. So it's still available if anybody is interested in the D.C. area. You know, we're not going to travel far, obviously. And uh, it's all very, very safe. Aubrey is very careful about keeping things safe. So if you'd like to get a little more Kessler in your life and hear a bit about wombats and Aldabra tortoises and sex education movies of the 1960s and a few other strange things, join us for Wombat Troll. You won't regret it. It's a good time. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, David. And I heartily approve this message. Thank you so much, Ariel. It's just been a pleasure. And I don't know if you want to add this, but years ago, you brought a class to the zoo uh, so that we could talk about the Latin origins of animal names, which I thought was like the coolest thing in the world. So, (laughs) Ariel, you are one of the coolest people I have ever met. So thank you. (laughs) That's hardly true. You know some pretty dang cool people, David. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our editor, William Das. Please leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you found us, as it really does help people find our show. We hope to see you next time you ride the omnibus.